And so Jesus is there. He's with his disciples. He's in the locked room. And how he did that is, is beyond us. But there's something about this resurrected body um, that is quite different from the bodies we have now. And so Jesus passes through a door, passes through a wall. What, whatever he does, he's, he's in the room with his disciples. And he gives them a charge. He gives them a responsibility, right? Verse 22. Verse 21, excuse me. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then he breathes the Holy Spirit. What is happening here? Well, this is John's version of the Great Commission. This isn't um, a reception of the Holy Spirit that is, um, that super, that, that is above and beyond the one in Acts. Uh, John is recording an, an event that happened that has also happened again in Acts in a different way, in a more powerful way in Acts. Obviously, and we'll get to this, it didn't work real well this time. They somehow got the Holy Spirit, but they weren't, didn't have the tongues of fire on them that we celebrate at Pentecost. But Jesus gives them a charge, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. The only way you can do what I'm telling you to do is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's telling them to go out, to go out and tell others about Jesus. It's just very similar to the Great Commission, right, that we see in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Matthew in Matthew's gospel, we have this sending out. In John's gospel, we have this one. Go. Go. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. But what are we going to do with this? Because God sent Jesus, God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son, to do some very specific things. One of which was to die on the cross so that the sins of the world, that those who believe in him, would be forgiven. You, friends, can't do that. That belongs to Jesus. And so there are some things that Jesus does that we simply can't. So we can't do it exactly in the same way. We cannot die for somebody's salvation. We can't even make somebody believe, right? We can tell them about Jesus, but we can't make them, we can't change their hearts or their minds about who Jesus is and make them believe. And so what does it mean to go then and go out as God has sent Jesus out? Well, there's probably lots of things, but there are three that come to mind. Um, the first one is this. How did the Father send Jesus? Well, one thing that Jesus does, and we see this abundantly in John's Gospel, Jesus is the light of the world, right? He is the light of that has come in to this dark world to shed the truth of God's grace and mercy on it. And friends, as a church, that's what we're called to do, to be the light of the world. We've received the Holy Spirit. We are the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. We are called to spread the light of the gospel into this world, to share the truth of God's grace and God's mercy into this world. And here's the deal with that. That means your faith cannot be private. You cannot have a private faith if you take this seriously. 
we like to, I think, um, close ourselves off. And, you know, my faith is my, my thing, and that's between me and God, and you figure out between you and God what your thing is. And this leaves no room for that. Increasingly, this culture would have us relegate our faith to something that's private, that's not public. And that, I'm telling you, that's incompatible with the gospel. Our faith is a public thing. Now, you can't force somebody to change their mind. We've been through this. But you can show them, and listen to that, show them the gospel. You can tell them about the gospel, but your words will fall on deaf ears if you're not also showing them the gospel. We are called to bring light into a dark world. Now, second thing, Jesus acted in the power of the Holy Spirit. This, you know, we're not exactly sure how this works. He's, he's God. He's the Son of God, but He's also incarnate man. And He acts in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, He receives the Holy Spirit at baptism. We hear about Jesus praying in the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit was somehow empowering and motivating this um, mortal human Jesus, divine and human. And so, so he got this. And he acted in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's much more in touch with it than we are. But that's how that works. And so we, friends, as a church, are called to act in the same way, in the power of the Holy Spirit. What happens? Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on his disciples. And so what we do can only be done by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Third thing. Jesus acted in full obedience to his Father. What the Father willed, Jesus did. And so we, church, are called to act in full obedience to Jesus Christ as our Lord and our God. And this, frankly, is where things start to break down a bit because we're not very good at that at obeying God, at doing what he has told us to do. I think we would very easily be joining those disciples locked up in the room even after receiving the Holy Spirit. We're not good at obeying Jesus, and we will get back to that. And then Jesus goes on, and he gives these disciples one more specific function, one more thing they're supposed to do. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does that mean? Well, I don't think it means that the disciples all of a sudden have the same power of forgiveness that Jesus has. But I think Jesus is describing how they are to relate to other folks whose sins have been forgiven. And I think he's saying that there's a chance that if we don't act like them, to them the way God acts to them in terms of forgiveness of sins, there's a very good danger that they will actually not know that power of forgiveness. And so Jesus is calling us not only to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, and so to go out and say, Jesus has forgiven your sins, but also to demonstrate that to the world. That if this fact is true, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ have our sins forgiven, then we, friends, must act like that is true. I think we as a church, as evangelicals in particular, like to say your sins are forgiven. 
that feels good. Somebody comes to know Jesus and we say, he has forgiven all of your sins. But we also like to remind people of their sins a month later. That their sins are forgiven. But when they mess up again, we like to remind them and say, didn't you just do that a month ago? Any of you married out there? Do you experience this? If you forgive somebody, they're forgiven. Right? It, it, it doesn't mean that you get to hold on to that and pretend like you forgave them until they mess up again and then remind them of what they messed up for in the first place. If we have folks coming to Jesus, it doesn't matter what they have done ever. If they know Jesus Christ, we, friends, are called to forgive them. That doesn't mean not, there's not consequences for actions. That doesn't mean not, um, there's not things that happen in the realm of this, this world that there's a consequence for certain um, sin. But it does mean that we, we have a new relationship with them, that we can't hold that against them, that we forgive them and we love them as Jesus loved us. So we have a pretty huge responsibility, a pretty big charge from Jesus to go into the world. Just as God sent Jesus, Jesus is sending us to go into the world to represent God through the Holy Spirit in obedience and invite people into the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That is our calling as a church. That was Jesus' call to the disciples. Well, how did they do with it? How did they respond well, I like to think that they heard this message, and they were excited, and they thought, look, Thomas isn't here. We'll try it out on him. We'll see how this goes. We'll tell Thomas, see what he does, and, you know, maybe, maybe we can go out beyond that. And so they see jo Thomas, and they tell him, hey, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. I don't think Thomas gave the answer they expected. Thomas says, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That was a bold statement. How many of you have said that before? I will never believe. How many of you are saying it now? The disciples tried it out. They told Thomas. He says, I will never believe. And so what did they do? They went back to the room. Although the doors were locked. Eight days later, they're in the room. The doors are locked. Jesus has done this amazing thing. He's appeared to them. Okay? He's breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Go out and do in the world what I have done for you. And what are they doing? They're locked in a room. I think they knew, I think they knew that if they obeyed Jesus, they would indeed be doing the same thing that he did, and they would be dying in service to God. They knew that if they left that room, they very likely would be giving up their life. Are you willing to give up your life? And not just physically, I mean, you might be called to that, but, but are you willing to give up everything you hold dear to follow Jesus? It's a lot easier, right, to be locked up in the room. And so we have doubting Thomas, but we also have a bunch of doubting disciples. 
And yet Jesus comes back to them. I mean, at some point you would think, like, find some new disciples, Jesus. They're not getting it. But he comes back, right? And he doesn't say, what are you doing? Why are you up here with doors locked? He doesn't say that, right? He says, peace be with you. He doesn't look at Thomas and say, hey, buddy, what's your problem? He says, Thomas, here's my hand. Here's my side. Believe. Have faith. What grace our Lord is showing to us. What grace he gives to us time and time again. Thus, those of us who, who, who said, I would never believe. Those of us who do believe, but don't act like we believe. And yet Jesus comes back time and time again. And he says, peace be with you. I love you. I have forgiven you. And then Thomas looks at Jesus. And this is the second possible response. He says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God, and he fully gives himself over to Jesus Christ. And that, friends, is what he is inviting us to do, to fully submit to him, to fully obey to him, to fully be under his authority. Fear and doubt represent a lack of faith. That doesn't mean you're not going to have them. I have them all the time. Fears and doubts and uncertainties. But at the end of the day, when we're afraid and when we're doubting, on some level, we don't fully trust Jesus. And he's not fully our Lord and he's not fully our God. So what are we going to do with this? You remember from last week, we talked about Jesus calling our name, right? He called Mary. He said, Mary. He called her to him. And so Jesus, he's still calling our names. But he's also giving us a charge, a responsibility. As my Father has sent me, now I am sending you. So when we've heard Jesus calling our name, we respond. We're called to respond, to step out. Maybe it's a baby step. Maybe it's a small step. Maybe we step out in full fear of what's going to happen but knowing that Jesus will uphold us and sustain us. And so our, our scripture this morning is inviting you, inviting me, to consider how are you responding to Jesus? Are you responding like Thomas initially? I will never believe. Jesus is going to keep coming to you. Peace be with you. He's going to keep calling your name. He's calling it again this morning. Come and be my disciple. Are you responding like the disciples? Holding yourself up in your room. Keeping your faith to yourself. Not letting folks in your workplace or at your schools know what you believe. Are you afraid? The Lord is inviting you. He, your, your fear is not going to disappear overnight. And it's certainly going to come back. But he's inviting you to try him out. Test him to see if you can trust him. And I promise you, you can. And some of you are ready, like Thomas at the end, to come back to Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. And once again, totally give your lives over to him. That's what we are invited to do today, to reconsider this. Jesus has called us 
to go out as the Father sent him, he is sending us. Where are you with that? How are you doing? And can the Lord give you more in this area? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have called us and sent us out. I pray that you will take our doubts away. You will give us a sincere and bold faith. That we would move from um, Thomas declaring that we will never believe. That we would move from the disciples locked up in the room to the disciples in Acts chapter 2. Proclaiming your gospel with the full power of the Holy Spirit. Make that real in our lives right now, this morning. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I love um, this reading from John's gospel. We typically get it on the second sun, or the first Sunday after Easter. Um, and it is, reading is often referred to as a reading about doubting Thomas. Um, and it's easy to refer to Thomas that way, full of doubt. Here he is in, in Scripture, um, showing us what many of us are thinking. And so Thomas is often labeled as the doubter. But he's not the only one doubting, I would say, in this passage or even in this room. There are plenty of doubters out there. And so we see it in the disciples and we see it in our own hearts. And so we're going to take a look this morning at John chapter 20, the second half of chapter 20. And we're going to see um, two things in this passage. Um, the first one has to do with the charge that Jesus gives his disciples. A, sig a significant charge, a significant responsibility. What is it and what does it mean for us? And the second thing is how do the disciples respond? And we see this in two ways. One response is with fear and doubt. And then the other response from the doubter himself is um, submission to Jesus and all that he is. So maybe you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible on your phone, um, but this would be a great time to pull it out. John chapter 20, we're also going to have it up on the screen, um, but it's nice to have your own. And so if you've got a Bible, by all means, um, pull it out and let's take a look at John chapter 20 and what is happening. Well, you remember from last week, we were in the first part of this chapter. Mary went to the tomb. She saw that the tomb was open, and so she ran back, and she told John, and she told Peter that Jesus' body had been taken, right? And so John and Peter race back to the tomb, and they, they get there, and they look inside, and indeed, Jesus' body is gone. Um, the clothes are laid there in the tomb, and they're not totally sure what to believe. They believe something, but they're not sure what. And so they return back home. Mary, right, she sticks around. And she finally looks inside the tomb. And there she sees the clothes. She sees the body missing. But she also sees the two angels. And then she turns around and she sees the gardener. And then she realizes that this gardener is Jesus. And he gives her instructions. Go and tell the others that I have risen. And she runs back. She tells the disciples, John and Peter and all the others, she has seen the Lord. She has seen the Lord. And that brings us then to our passage this morning. It's that very same day, that evening we see, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the very first Easter Sunday... 
the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And so they've heard this testimony. They've heard these rumors about Jesus' body um, being missing, about Jesus possibly being raised from the dead. And I'm guessing that even welled up more fear in them. That, that these rumors of Jesus being gone certainly would have the Jewish authorities now looking for the disciples. Perhaps they were to meet the same fate as Jesus. And so they stayed in the room with the doors locked. And this, I would suggest to you, might be one of the most terrifying scenes in all of Scripture. Um, it says that the disciples were glad to see Jesus, but I imagine that was not the first thing that came into their heart. And so right there in verse, verse um, 19 and 20, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. So the doors were locked and they were afraid. And then Jesus, the dead man, is suddenly there. That's amazing in and of itself. This is the same Jesus that they had rejected, remember? They, did, they deserted him. They did not stay with him as he went through his passion and his death. John certainly was there at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother. But for the most part, Jesus was all alone. These men had deserted him. And all of a sudden, he is in the room with them through a locked door. So yeah, they were glad he was alive. But certainly, it must have been a little bit scary. And Jesus says to them, peace, right? Verse 21, or verse 20, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 